0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast, I'm Tom Keane. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let me bring in our, our, our first guest, John Farrell, who you know quite well, Robin Niblett, he's with Chatham House. Uh, They do wonderful work in thinking about international relations. Uh, Robin, let me give you an open question to start. What is the Chatham House lead essay for this January?
1: Um, The lead essay for us is Europe. Um, I think it's not just about Brexit. Uh, It's about the Italian election. It's about whether Macron and Angela Merkel can get it together, if Angela Merkel can get a government put together uh, to lead a rejuvenation of European integration. This matters because uh, the United States is self-obsessed. And where Europe goes, I think, matters for big questions like the future of the global economy and uh, global cooperation. So Europe is our main focus. Well, my main focus.
0: Eric Nielsen of Unicredit was quite adamant that Europe arguably is doing better than the United States. Do you buy that idea? Not only economically, but almost politically. Um,
1: Let's see. Everything's relative. I think the United, uh, Europe and the European Union are doing better in the sense that they waved off some of the big populist scares of 2017. Mm -hmm. They're seeing some, I think, what looks like sustainable growth, which is picked out of the uh, Draghi uh, program of fiscal easing, of monetary easing. Um, and, yeah, I do think there are some quite deep roots to it. Uh, you're seeing it in as diverse economies as Portugal, Spain, uh, Italy, some parts of Central Europe still keeping it up. And, of course, Germany is just remarkable with the surpluses it's achieving right now on its, on its budget. Uh, It actually gives a lot of room. Uh, You know, you think the country's in trouble, but here we are sitting, what, with a 25 billion euro surplus on its budget this year, maybe going up to 40 in in 2017, uh, 2018. Incredible.
2: Robin, what's been remarkable about Germany is it doesn't have a government and it's taken Chancellor Merkel over three months, more than three months, to get it together. Do you see signs that Chancellor Merkel is finally getting it together? And what are the main objectives of this government this time around? Well, I think it's...
1: uh, to your first part of your question, it is getting it together in the sense at least the two party leaderships have come up with a program between the uh, SPD and her CDU-CSU coalition. I think there's a long way to go with the SPD uh, uh, and the rank and file, the, the coalition agreement has to be approved by them. So I don't think we're out of the woods yet, actually. And her authority, of course, is much, much uh, less strong than it was when she created the other governments. If they can achieve it, however, I think their priority is to invest in infrastructure, which, as we've talked about for some time now, is one of uh, Germany's growing uh, Achilles heels. There's quite a bit of a sense of how do you redistribute the uh, the, the you know the positive economic news and uh, there's going to be some easing off as I understand it of uh, pension tightening up on pension contributions instead of that they'll carry on being relatively uh, generous and better health care provision. So what you can see here is an effort to say to the German people there are, uh, benefits socially to strong economic growth over time, yeah. and it's not all about belt-tightening. And that would be an important shift of message for Germany, to be frank.
2: Robin, their domestic objectives. Uh, Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, will be hoping there will be some European objectives. Does she have the political capital at home to drive through the, the vision of Emmanuel Macron across Europe to a more integrated Eurozone? I I...
1: If I had to put my cards on one side of the table, I'd say I don't think she does, actually. Her own party, the CDU, CSU, remain very skeptical about deeper integration of the Eurozone without actually having seen, at least, real... Uh, French structural reform in place and delivering results. Uh, the SPD, her partners, are uh, much more in favour, but remember they only polled about 20% in the last election, um, and where the where the growth is on the margins, that are sceptical about European integration, much like the Labour Party is sceptical in the United Kingdom about the EU uh, as a whole. So, I don't think so. The good news, of course, on the other for Germany is I don't think Macron, personally, is that... Committed in the near term to deeper eurozone integration. What he wants is an EU that can protect him as he conducts really difficult domestic reforms. So I think he's more interested in immigration controls, more interested in protections against foreign investment by state-owned companies like the Chinese. You know, he's. I think the protection agenda of Europe, almost slightly old fortress Europe 2.0, is more his priority.
0: I look at, at, at where we are, Robin, and almost what the theory is of international relations now. To Ian Bremmer's point, it does seem like every nation and almost every theory for itself.
3: Hmm.
1: Um, There is, I think there is a theory of change and a theory of good government, I believe, that remains in the future applicable for everyone. And I do think that is reflected in the economies of Europe the United States, uh, you know, Australia, let's call it the West. Uh, the reason I say that is although there seems to be a lot of competition for these different approaches, um, not all countries are at the same stage of economic development. So it's fine for China to run a centralized approach, but China is not yet a fully functioning consumer economy driven by innovation and technology. The demands of the people are right. not the same. So I still think uh, there may be one theory, the problem is getting there is gonna take a lot longer than anyone well, expected before.
0: Let me cut to the chase. How will the president be greeted in Davos? Fareed Zakaria wrote about a post-American world. You you, you almost wonder what the post-Trumpian world world will be like, whether it's one term or
1: two terms. Um, And actually, I, I had a piece that came out in the Berlin Policy Journal earlier this week where I think I picked up probably on some of that theme that you mentioned, Fareed Zakaria mentioned as well. I think we're moving to a stage of the world where America's traditional allies cannot count on America to have their back except on issues of existential threats to their security. We are not on a common agenda right now. America is um, fixing America first, uh, but I think this is helping other parts of the world, if I may say so, to grow up. Europe needs to grow up and take more care of its own regional security. Japan is gonna have to grow up uh, and find ways to get on better with South Korea, so that they can protect themselves against mm. uh, China's rise. Um, uh, in the Middle East, we've already seen it. The Saudis have decided they better grow up and look after their wow, security what a a shift bit more. There. So uh, you yeah. know, even though they like Trump. I do think they trust America.
0: That's a good place to go. John Furrow, it's a tough decision what we should do with Robin Niblett. Next, should we talk about Saudi Arabia and the massive changes in the Middle East? Or should we talk about the continued collapse of AC Milan? I can't figure I, out I which one what we should
2: do, I don't know what Robin do, Niblett's John. got to say about that. If he's got something to add, some value add for AC Milan, then then I would love that. Robin
1: <laughs> <laughs> Niblett. I, I love American football. You know, that's my problem. Uh, do you want to do that? We,
2: we can do that then, Robert. Robin. Robin <laughs> Niblett, the Chatham House director, yeah. will be sticking with us here on Bloomberg Surveillance. Is 2018 the year the reflation trade materialises? Brent crude had a push through $70 for the first time in several years. The dollar has weakened to a multi-year low, a three-year low. Unemployment in Germany at an all-time low and unemployment here in the United States at a decade low. All the ingredients you would think for an inflation pickup. Let's get across to David Page, AXA Investment Management's Senior Economist. David, is this the year that it actually materialises?
4: Well, yes, we think it is, but I don't think it's going to be a dramatic story. And I think it's something that unfolds over over a couple of quarters. We do expect to see evidence of firmer inflation, particularly in the economies that look like they've got tighter markets. We're thinking the U.S., we're thinking the U.K. I think in Eurozone where there's more spare capacity, it's going to take more time to emerge. But as you say, I think the oil price is something that's going to provide a slight lift at the start. We don't expect that to run too much more. Dollar weakness exacerbates, but I think what really is pushing is likely to come through here is wage inflation. We've been. Looking Looking for this for so long, but the tightness of the US labor market I think really does suggest that we start to see more visible evidence of that cyclical pickup in inflation coming through and offsetting some of the headwinds that kept inflation so subdued last year.
2: David, at the moment we witness what could be more evidence of a dysfunctional Washington, D.C. Over the last several months, though, what we got was the tax bill. For markets and for the investors that you speak with, the fund managers at AXA, Is it okay to have a dysfunctional DC again because we've got the tax bill and therefore investors have got what they wanted and nothing else matters?
4: Well, I think markets have become used to dysfunction from Washington. Bear in mind, this is not something that's just um, come along with the the Trump administration. We've seen this basically for the last six years of the Obama administration as well. So we now expect this sort of backdrop. I think to some extent, as long as we see the implementation of the tax reform, which of course requires a budget to be enacted rather than these continuing resolutions that we we seem to be heading towards again at the end of this week. Um, But by and large, as long as we get that tax reform come through, then we are going to see markets... broadly satisfied. We don't expect to see too much more come from this administration, yeah. certainly not ahead of the midterms.
0: David, I'm looking at my screen, my Bloomberg screen, equities, bonds, currencies, commodities, and it's truly a tr- a too-good-to-be-true screen. What's There's always an exogenous shock at some point that gets in the way. What is it?
4: Well, I think in the very short term, we can look not only to the the, the debate around fiscal spending plans, but also to the possibility of trade um, or or trade wars ramping up the agenda again. Bear in mind that we've seen the Trump administration bring forward the the reports it's going to get on steel production, uh, to some extent on intellectual property. We do expect this to be included in the State of the Union. Could that provide the shock? Could we see a shock coming from China? It's, It's very hard, as you know, to anticipate exactly what one of these shocks could be coming further forwards. But yeah. what we see from you know, the period of time that we haven't seen, for example, a correction in S&P over the last best part of a year, yeah. that's quite an unusual period. We would expect to see some um, correction come through across the course of this year. And on balance, that's something that we think that will probably um, see the Federal Reserve have to pause at one point, even though generically yeah. it's looking to tighten
2: monetary policy I mean- um, across the board.
0: I mean, an exogenous shock, John, could be AC Milan wins two
2: games in a row. That would be a serious shock to my life, I can tell you that. David Page, let's talk about trade, and then we can talk about the Federal Reserve. On the trade issue, I can't think of a single subject over the last, I don't know, 18 months that has consumed so much time and produced so little. Nothing has actually happened. Those fears have not materialized in any real way, shape, or form, will they? Well, uh, to some
4: extent, they have. I mean, we are in NAFTA negotiations. We are in a NAFTA negotiation that um, that continually and, and increasingly threatens to see the U.S. pull out. Yeah. Certainly NAFTA negotiations at this stage aren't making progress. We have seen the U.S. But let's defo- be clear, David. 18 months
2: ago, we were worried about a trade war between the United States and China, if I had told you 18 months ago that it's sitting here January 2018, trade relations between China and the United States would be exactly the same, and for that matter, trade relations between the United States and pretty much the rest of the world would be very much unchanged, I think some people would have been surprised. Some may have been, but I
4: don't think many. I mean, certainly we weren't. We suggested that the first outlook was going to be for the administration to deal with tax reform. They've done that. I think the trade issue is something that now comes into play and more dramatically could come into play if we see a significant deterioration in Republicans' control of Congress at the midterms. Then you look to a president that still wants to talk to his base and that looks to some of the remaining tools that he may have in the absence of control.
0: You know, I look at Apple Computer, $901 billion market cap. Amazon, of course, over two standard deviations higher as well. David Page, you look at all this good feeling in America. Do you believe within your economics, do you believe in trickle-down theory? Is all that I'm seeing on the Bloomberg screen, as all that I'm witnessing here in London, is it trickling down to the greater public?
4: Yes, some of it surely is. And what, what's been the remarkable thing of the last 15 months has been the sharp pickup in sentiment and how that has delivered firmer growth. We were surprised to the upside to see 2.3% growth across the course of 2017. We forecast growth of 2.5% in the US acceleration into 2018. The Bloomberg consensus is for even more than that is at 26 So yes, there is some growth coming through. Um, A part of that obviously is, is the, um, the tax reform stimulus that we're seeing coming through. But I think the key question that we have is how sustainable is this? Do we see this seeing a pickup in yeah. business investment that, that raises sustainable growth in the States? And the answer to that is no, we don't see that coming through. Uh, we still think that sustainable growth is somewhat more subdued. And I think this period of very welcome, robust growth coming from the U.S. is something that's likely to fade over the coming couple of years.
0: I mean, I'm looking, John Farrell, I did not realize this David Page, brilliant on this, the Bloomberg Consumer Comfort Index is above where it was in the spring of 2007. I didn't know that. Yeah. Should I put that chart out on do it. Twitter for all? Do, of it, Bloomberg do, it, do, it, do Bloomberg it. Do it. Do it. Radio Bloomberg Radio sees it first? Do it. We the, should do that.
2: The soft data and the hard data really picking up in the United States, David. I think it's something that's uh confused some, not many. A lot of people in the market's kind of understand what's happening in the FX market, but for you, David, can you explain this dollar weakness?
4: Well, I think there's a couple of things. I think in the short term there are some risks and, and we're thinking again trade, we're thinking again government shutdown, but I think it's much bigger than this. I think what we're seeing is a cyclical development come through here. It's a consistent theme that as we move towards the later stages of global economic growth, a point where we start to see commodities starting to pick up, that the dollar tends to underperform. Many of us look to the sort of short-term relationship between the dollar and interest rate differentials and that of course leads us to suggest, well, the Federal Reserve is tightening monetary policy, other jurisdictions are only considering this over the medium term, so surely the dollar should rise. But think back to 2004, 2006, the last time we went into a sort of towards the end of a cycle. Here we saw the Federal Reserve consistently tightening monetary policy, and yet trade-weighted dollar fell by about five and quarter percent from the start of 2004 yeah. to the end of 2006. This is a consistent theme. It reflects the fact that, yes, the U.S. is doing well, but to some extent that's in the price. The dollar's appreciated markedly over the last four or five years um, and looks relatively expensive. Now, many investors are thinking that other regions of the globe may actually be doing yeah. better as well. And so it's a relative story coming through.
0: David, thank you so much. David Page with us from AXA, uh, AXA uh, uh, investment managers. Greatly appreciate his attendance. John Farrow in New York, I'm Tom Keene in London, and with us now, Lindsay Piazza uh, uh, joins us. Dr. Pieza, where's your run rate on GDP? Can you get to a Trumpian 3% or are you more subdued?
3: For the fourth quarter, I think we're still looking for something below 3%. Uh, we did see the consumer still uh, on very uh, solid footing, but there's uh, several other pieces that just seem to have lost momentum as we yeah. did the final quarter of the year, so I think is very optimistic. I think a a strong 2-ish percent is really what we're going to be seeing.
0: Where are those momentum dampeners? I mean, it's Stiefel Nicholas. You've got a great pulse of of a huge body of the nation away from the three zip codes uh, on global uh, New York, Wall Street. Where where have we slipped or stumbled?
3: Well, I think a good loss of momentum surrounds what we saw out of Washington. There was a lot of euphoria, a lot of excitement built into the marketplace. Consumers were actually going out and spending in anticipation of receiving larger refund checks. But I think there was some disappointment when we actually saw the numbers of the amount of additional after tax income that consumers can expect to receive uh, come 2018 with those refunds. And so I, I think some of the realization that tax reform will not be a silver bullet will not be a flip the switch scenario to five or six percent as the uh, the president I believe uh promised at one point. I I think that alone is starting to eat into some of this confidence, both on the consumer side as well as on the business side.
0: Within that Lindsay is I guess the consumer John and I are looking at a screen Dow twenty six thousand eleven on futures. S P twenty eight hundred it's a melt up. Why are we seeing the melt up as you look through the prism of economics.
3: Well, the equity market seems to benefit regardless of what the outcome of tax reform is. If we do, in fact, see organic growth, companies taking that additional cash, putting that to work, growing their business, increase hiring, which eventually will lead to upward pressure on wages, and GDP does seem to see a sizable increase, uh, maybe of one to two percentage points above this trend rate, well, that's fantastic for the equity market. On the flip side, if we see inorganic activity with this increase in cash for corporations, meaning they keep the cash on the balance sheet or corporations use debt or buy back stock, well, guess what? That's also fantastic for the equity market. At least in the near term, it does seem as if it's a win-win for equities, but... Longer term, unless we see the underlying momentum of the economy pick up to justify where these levels are, we would expect at some point a correction back down to the more realistic 2%-ish economy that we're seeing out in the marketplace.
2: Lindsay, away from equities, elsewhere on the screen, you've got all the ingredients, a recipe for a pickup in inflation. You've got crude approaching $70 a barrel. A U.S. dollar that's the weakest it's been in about three years. You've mentioned some of the economic indicators, unemployment, etc., pointing to a really tight labor market, not just here in the United States, but elsewhere as well. How does Jay Powell at the Federal Reserve guide the market through that this year? Does three a projected three hikes move to four?
3: Well, actually, I, I think the risk is uh, to the downside. I think we're going to see fewer rate hikes than the Fed is promising, and it's because of that inflation conundrum. And the idea that we've seen this this equation that, that's perfectly, uh, which should be perfectly baking inflation into the cake, has not been. And I don't see any evidence that that's going to change, particularly from the labor market standpoint. Uh, we've seen the unemployment rate well within the Fed's target range of full employment for years now, and yet that hasn't translated into wage pressures. Why? Because the civilian unemployment rate, in our opinion, no longer captures the true health of the labor market. And when we look at all the structural changes that are occurring, it's actually uh, more akin to 8 or 9% unemployment. And I, and I don't see that evaporating. I don't see corporations absorbing that pool of available labor anytime soon. Uh, even if we do see investment pick up, it's mostly yeah. to be on the structural or equipment side as opposed to the employee side. So I do think inflation is going to continue to evade us for 2018, making it very difficult for a Powell Fed to push through three rate hikes.
2: Lindsay Piegsa, Stiefel, Chief Economist, joining us to discuss the economy in the United States of America and what it means for Jay Powell and the Federal Reserve.
5: It is our pleasure now to introduce Neil Ferguson. He is a noted author, but his most recent book is entitled, The Square and the Tower, Networks and Power from the Freemasons to Facebook, and he joins us here in our 1130 studio. Neil, thank you very much for being here, and congratulations on the new book. Thanks, Tim. Let's begin with uh, a part of the uh, sort of thought I think that runs through this, which is the lesson of history, and this is you writing, is that trusting in networks to run the World is a Recipe for Anarchy. I wonder how you could connect that with your desire to actually write the
6: book. <laughs> well, we live at a time uh, when the people who run giant online social networks, people like, say, Mark Zuckerberg, have been arguing everything is going to be awesome if we're all connected. I mean, that has been the riff out of Silicon Valley for the better part of 20 years. And yet we saw in 2016 that if you allowed giant online social networks to play a big part in politics, what you end up with is far from the global community that uh, Zuckerberg has talked about. You actually end up with polarization, extraordinary polarization between left and right. That's a characteristic feature of Facebook and Twitter. And you end up with crazy stuff going viral because the social networks that we've created don't really care if something is true or false. They just care if it's engaging to users. So I think simply looking at the recent history of very large online social networks you can see how disruptive uh, they can be. And if you imagine a world that is organized around network platforms, and some people have argued for this. Uh, there's a kind of utopian streak out there arguing that we should we should run the whole world this way then I think you end up with something closer to anarchy. So the book is an attempt to teach some history to Silicon Valley and people who work in the tech uh, industry, but it's also an attempt to teach some technology, some network science, to people who are interested in history, because actually that's a that's a Venn diagram where the two circles basically scarcely overlap. Speak, if you can, about the concept of hierarchy. I got that
5: far into the book over the weekend, and I'm just wondering if you could explain the historical antecedents for hierarchy and how they fit into our modern understanding of it.
6: Well, most of history isn't very networky. I mean, most of history these distributed social networks are quite weak compared with hierarchical structures like governments, states, armies, bureaucracies, churches. Most of history is quite hierarchically organized. There's in most human organizations somebody in charge. This may even be true of Bloomberg. I've I've heard, a, I've heard tell of a very powerful man in this building. Yeah, so Bloomberg. most institutions are pretty hierarchical. It's unusual for distributed social networks to be more powerful, to be able to disrupt hierarchical order. That has happened really only a couple of times in history. And I talk about not only our own time, which is is familiar, but also about that time after the printing press spread across Europe, when uh, a network created by the printing press was so powerful that it was able, essentially, to disrupt the power of the pope. And a great many monarchs. So this is the kind of story. There there are these periods when networks get empowered. It's usually because of technological change. And at those times, the hierarchical structures can be weakened and even overthrown.
0: Uh, Neil Ferguson with us, folks, on his wonderful, hugely thought-provoking book, The Square and the Tower. Uh, This is a book where all the certitude of Silicon Valley goes right out the window. Uh, Neil, you dovetail it nicely. Chapter 45, Henry Kissinger's Network of Power. Uh, You've written a definitive one volume on the young Kissinger and his path to 1968. Uh, How do you dovetail Dr. Kissinger uh, into the modern-day certitude of Silicon Valley?
6: Well, Tom, I think it was partly writing the Kissinger biography that made me start thinking about networks. I I have a hypothesis about my second volume, which I still have to write of his life. Don't hold your breath. It could be a few years. The hypothesis is that the reason Kissinger, who was clearly a powerful intellect by 1968 and a very influential public intellectual, became so politically powerful to the point that he really became the most powerful man uh, after the president in two administrations had to do with his extraordinary skill as a networker. And uh, despite his relatively academic uh, background, Kissinger proved extraordinarily adept at networking well. when he got to Washington, not only within the government, but more interestingly okay. outside the government. So mm. but I was thinking a lot about networks and I decided, look, before I can write volume two, I have to get my head around networks as a general phenomenon. I love it. I mean, I've seen you,
0: Neil, work the Belvedere Hotel, the bar there, with the $26 barley soup and the $45 uh, meatloaf like nobody. <laughs> I believe the President of the United States is going to wander up Happy Valley. You talk about the triumph of Davos, man. Will the President
6: triumph in Davos? Well, I don't think they're going to pelt him with rotten eggs or even bread rolls, because although Davos uh, can't bear what Donald Trump stands for, certainly on policy. They can't bear the protectionism. They can't bear the nativism. They can't bear the lapses into racism. On the other hand, he's the most powerful man in the world. Sorry, Xi Jinping, you're not as powerful as the president of the United States just yet, whatever the Economist may tell the world. And I think Davos ultimately does love power. So I suspect he'll get a kind of frosty but polite hearing uh, and if he gives a speech like the one he gave in Warsaw last year, it'll be hard for them to, to boo and, and hiss. Uh, the other other point to notice is that, you know, when Trump makes his anti-globalization arguments, ordinary Swiss people are nodding their heads. So whatever they may be saying in the conference room, and you and I know the kind of people who end up there, out there in German-speaking Switzerland, I think most people basically agree with Trump's critique of globalization, and, and, and especially with his line on immigration.
5: Neil, just to follow up, you mentioned China and Xi Jinping. Let's begin by your thoughts on how networks have developed within China, both politically but also culturally.
6: China's fascinating. And I, I just got back from there, actually. Uh, went on a, on a trip to Hangzhou to see Alibaba, Jack Ma's headquarters. And what's very striking is that the Chinese have evolved a completely different model of the relationship between giant technology companies and government. Here we basically have the separation of powers. Silicon Valley hates uh, the Trump administration, and the feelings pretty much mutual. No matter how much the president uses uh, the network platforms, uh, there's really quite a, a tension, I think, and I think that tension will will grow. But in China, essentially, the big companies, uh, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, the so-called BAT or BAT companies are subordinate to the government. And when you see Jack Ma together with Xi Jinping, there's no doubt who the senior partner is. So I think that's a completely different model, and it's going to be fascinating to see how the two coexist. Neil Ferguson, he is the author of the latest book called The Square and the
5: Tower, Networks and Power from the Freemasons to Facebook.